Now let's uh, turn to the letter to the Hebrews and chapter 11. (coughs) Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 23 is the verse we've been looking at for some time, which focuses on Moses' parents. By faith, when he was born, Moses was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now tonight let's turn to Moses himself and the Famous words of verses 24 to 26. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming, as he made that choice, the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses' choice. So we're moving from the faith of Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, to the faith of Moses himself. And uh, in the morning, we left Moses still really as a young boy, possibly around seven years of age. We saw the extraordinary circumstances which led to him being raised by his own mother, even though she had cast him out into the Nile. That casting out was not the unbelief that led other mothers to cast their male children into the Nile, but it was an act of faith in God that he would look after this child and miraculously deliver him from the jaws of death and from the mouth of hell. And so, indeed, it happened. And it so happened that uh, Moses' sister put into Pharaoh's daughter's heart to adopt this boy and to have him raised by a Hebrew mother, who was, of course, the child's own mother, Jochebed. And after these early nursery years are passed, Jochebed brings the child to Pharaoh's daughter, probably the princess Hatshepsut, who became one of the famous female pharaohs herself, and she places the child into her home. She is now the child's adopted mother. And The mother now names the child. She gives the child a name that functions both in the Egyptian language and in the Hebrew language. In the Egyptian language, Moshe means born. And every pharaoh carried the name Moshe in it, at least in the 18th dynasty. Amose means that you were born of that deity, Ah. Ramose you were born of the deity Ra, the sun. Uh, Thutmose means that you were born of the god Thut, and so on. So Mose meant born. But of course, in Hebrew, it means to be drawn out. And she used that name that the mother had given him. She adapts it because that was God's providence. Because not only was Moses himself drawn out of the water, but he symbolized the work of Christ in so doing. He would draw Israel out of the Red Sea and into liberty, and Christ himself, placed in a coffin, would rise into resurrection life, drawn from the waters of death. So in all these things, God is speaking to the woman, speaking to Israel, and still speaking to us. Now the next 30 or so years in Moses' life are passed over, you could say, in virtual silence, until, as this text says, he came to be of age. 
Moses, when he became of age, made a choice, refusing one thing and choosing another. Now, there's some discussion, if not debate, about what coming of age actually means. Was it a a particular stage of life that he entered into? Is, Is that what's meant by coming to a particular age? I don't think it is. I think that coming of age here is simply contrasted with when he was born in verse 23. Verse 23 says that something happened to Moses when he was born. Verse 24 says that something happened to him when he became of age. So it simply means when he had grown up. On the face of it, it could be his youth or in his adulthood. It doesn't really matter. In one way, although we're told later what age he actually was, The real point is, and what really matters, is that he came to some kind of point in life where a decision had to be taken, and he took it. And of course that decision had ramifications for himself and for God's people, for the church down through the ages. Moses' choice. It's Stephen who tells us, in his sermon, uh, thousands of years later, that Moses made this decision when he was 40 years of age. In a very real sense for Moses, uh, life began at 40, which may, well, we might consider that to be a very late stage at which to begin a life, but for Moses, that's when he began life. He obviously had a decision to make then. Sometimes age itself can force decisions on us. There are stages in life that you pass through. For example, if you turn 12 or 13, that's when a Jewish boy has his bar mitzvah. There's a decision to make. When you reach 18 or 21, there's a decision to make. Perhaps again, when you reach 60, if you're spared, there's a decision to make. You reach a certain stage of life that forces you to choose things, from subjects in school to a career to just what you're going to do with the final years if God gives you them. Sometimes just the, the mere passage of time brings before you the solemnity of the passage of time. I'm 13 now, or I'm 21 now, or now I'm 40, or now I'm 65. And it makes you reflect. It makes you ask things like, uh, what have I done with my time and my life? What am I doing? with my time and my life? What will I do with my time and my life? And at times like that, alternative paths can come powerfully before you, and that is exactly what happened to Moses. God saw work in providence, and we saw this morning how God works in providence. He saw work in providence that at the age of 40, two paths were very clearly, starkly, presented before him and he had to choose it's the kind of choice that you have to make it's not as though he could reject them both Um, he had to choose the one or the other and I want to look with you at this choice that he did make at around 40 years of age I would tend to think myself although I can't assert it strongly I think it is probably the death of the Pharaoh that concentrated his own mind his adopted mother's father, Thutmose I, was, was the third of the aggressive pharaoh kings of the 18th dynasty, fiercely nationalistic, totally opposed to immigrants, and of course they have begun to persecute and now enact genocide on the people of God. But with the passing of that king, Moses, apart from a stepbrother, is actually the heir to the throne. And a thing like that concentrates the mind wonderfully. Who am I and what do I want in life? Is it what Egypt has to offer or is it something else that's completely and radically different? And we'll see as we go on how this choice is presented before 
all of us here tonight. It's particularly presented every time the gospel of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is preached to you. Two ways, two gates, two paths, two destinations. These are the paths and destinations involved in Moses' choice. So, with a view to God's help, let's look at them together. Let's look first at the two alternatives that lay before him. Secondly, the choice that he made. And third, the reasons why he made it. The two alternatives, the choice that he made, and the reasons why he made it. Now, first of all, and this will take the longest, the alternatives before him. And let's just call the first alternative the way that he's already on. And that is the way of Egypt. The way of Egypt. We could just call it that. It's described in these verses, 24 to 26, in three ways. It's a way of privilege, a way of pleasure, and a way of treasure. The privilege is that he was already the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's his privilege. The pleasures that he was able to enjoy were the passing pleasures of sin. And the treasures that he is able to enjoy are called simply in verse 26 the treasures in Egypt. I would think that treasures there is a more or less explicit reference to wealth. That's the way he's on. Privilege, treasure, and pleasure. Now, very often pleasures and treasures come with privilege and position. Sometimes at least it's like that. Very often it's like that. If you have privilege, station, position, there are treasures and pleasures with it. And that's why it makes sense to begin with Moses' privilege. He was who he was, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It so happened that this man who strides through history like a colossus, dominating not just the book of Exodus, but in many respects dominating the Old Testament, it so happens that that's who he was. He was actually the son of the daughter of the most powerful monarch on the earth, and he was in that position in the most advanced nation on the face of the earth at the time. That's who he was, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And it's more than likely that that in itself tells us that everything is really open to him. And in some ways he could just do as he pleased. Not saying there were no restraints on that, but in that kind of position, you call the shots and you live as you please. I remember reading some time ago in the life of St. Augustine in the 4th century how he gave God thanks that when he wanted so much to sin, he wasn't actually able to sin as much as he wanted in God's providence. And then, when he really was able to sin, in God's providence and grace, he found that he didn't really want to so much. And as a Christian, particularly, you have reason to give God thanks for the way that he sometimes hedged yourself around with kind and gracious providences to keep you back from many things that you could have done, things that you wanted to do. And in retrospect, you're so glad that you never did them. Now, Moses had very few of these checks around about him. His life was privileged. And as well as being privileged in his position, he also excelled in his position. Because when Stephen describes his life before he made this famous choice, he tells us three things about him growing up in Egypt. First of all, that he was instructed in Egyptian wisdom. Second, he was mighty in words, in the spoken word. And third, 
He was mighty in acts, in what he did. Instructed in Egyptian wisdom to the point that he became mighty in his speech and mighty or powerful in his actions. Now, let me just say a brief word about all of these. First of all, he was instructed in Egyptian wisdom. Now, it's come to light now, after so many years, that in Egypt at that time, you were in the best academies and places of instruction that existed on the face of the earth. And the Egyptian pharaohs would gather the best teachers in every discipline and bring them into their own court to train the best of their men. And many of the advances in uh, astronomy, engineering, medicine, that were credited to the Greeks even just 40, 50 years ago, are now seen to have really been made in Egypt. And it's important to remember that Moses was exposed to all that. In language, he wouldn't just learn Egyptian hieroglyphics. He would, he would have learned the languages of other courts and other kingdoms, which people in his kind of office were expected to learn. He would, of course, have known Hebrew from childhood. He would also have known Akkadian and other Semitic languages like that, as well as other kinds of language. They were to be learned. In astronomy, they had already divided the year into 365 days. They have elaborate astronomical calendars uh, showing the stellar constellations, the positions of the stars that have been handed down through the years and discovered. In mathematics, in geometry, they could tell the volume of three-dimensional objects, their surface areas. They could do quadratic equations in algebra. He had to sit and do algebra, which will immediately connect a lot of you with Moses. Again, in history, he would learn the history not just of his people, his adopted people, Egypt, but the powerful other empires that had risen before, particularly in Babylon. In engineering, well, most of you will know about the pyramids. These fantastic structures that are aligned to the pole star, which is not clearly visible in Egypt, just one degree off the north, with the elaborate structures and tombs inside them that are still amazing people in terms of how they were actually done, how they were built and how they were accomplished. All these things are taught to the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and were told that he was mighty in deeds. There is only one historical allusion to that, allusion to that, sorry, and that's from the writings of Josephus, who tells us that an Egyptian expedition uh, to conquer Ethiopia was led by Moses, a man called Moses, of course. He was mighty also in words because the Egyptians prided themselves on public speaking and debate, and Stephen tells us that he was mighty in these things. He could stand in the court of a foreign dignitary and present the Egyptian position. It's an interesting thing that because 40 years later, if you fast forward uh, to a time when he's maybe quite disillusioned in Midian, having left Egypt 40 years earlier with, after his aborted attempt to liberate his people, when God called him to go back, he didn't want to go back and he didn't feel able to go back and he kept saying to God, I can't even speak. can't even speak. Now, there's many a person who uh, thought he, he was entitled to speak, saying, well, Moses didn't think he could speak. And if you think I can't speak, well, neither could Moses speak. The Bible says nowhere that Moses couldn't speak well. The Bible does tell us that Moses thought he couldn't speak well himself, which is a different thing. And it's a good thing for a person to be diffident and humble 
in connection with their own gifts. It's a very important thing that as Christians we are exactly that. That we're not the people who go around trumpeting uh, what we do and how good what we do is. Moses certainly didn't think he was a great speaker, but Stephen tells us that he was. He was mighty in his words before he was converted, before he was called to lead Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now the fact that he was taught and successful in military matters, matters of court and matters of public speaking, all these things tell you that this is a man who had a high station in life, as high as you could get, and had done well in everything that was before him. In other words, when the way of Egypt is stretched out before him, it's a way he knows, it's a way he's travelled, and he can only expect to go upwards and onwards. It's not as though his life is something that he expects to be cramped or to be restricted. It's not as though it's all going to go pear-shaped and take a bad turn. As far as he's concerned, or could be concerned, he was on the right way, he was on the best way, and a way that could only get better and brighter. So with that, of course, the privilege and the position that comes the treasures and the pleasures. And maybe at the age of 40, with the death of Pharaoh, maybe these things just open out more and more. Like I said, he can do what he wants. Maybe that's a dream position for all of you to be in, to say, well, I would really love that kind of status. I would really have loved to have excelled or to excel to a place where I too am really powerful in my speech and powerful in my actions, where people admire me for who I am and what I have attained to. Everybody wants that. Like the rich young ruler, he had that unholy triumvirate of wealth and uh, power and youth. I mean, who doesn't want these three things? A rich young ruler, I've got wealth, youth and power. Moses had all that, although at 40 he's beginning to lose the youth. But there's another way opening out before Moses too. Or at least it's presented before him just like it's presented before you. I don't know how much attention you give it. The fact that you're here at all, I suppose, suggests that you do. It was before Moses as well, and in the Bible it's called the way of God's people, or even the way of Christ. He's conscious of it. The way of Egypt, but also the way of God's people. The way of the true and living God doesn't just know about it as a a monotheistic religion that characterizes this group that have more or less colonized the nation. He knows about it more deeply and more experimentally than that. In fact, it's possible that by studying he would hardly have come across it at all. Because some of these Egyptian dynasties tended to obliterate previous dynasties. And they would try to create a kind of year zero which Chairman Mao, of course, created in China when he he burnt up the history books. Pol Pot did essentially the same thing in Cambodia, trying to reset to a year zero, where where the past was eradicated. The, The old way of doing things was eradicated. Burn the books, burn the literature. If necessary, rewrite it. The Egyptians did that. And the 18th dynasty tended to obliterate what had gone. That's why some people are surprised that, in spite of the fact that many of the patriarchs and many of the people in the Bible appear on rocks and on uh, manuscripts and so on, the name of Joseph is very elusive. But there's no surprise it's elusive because it was blotted out. We're told that the new kings did not know Joseph, didn't want to know Joseph, They didn't want to know an immigrant who had made their nation great. Get that out of here. Deface deface the monuments. Get rid of the literature and rewrite it. So it's highly (coughs) unlikely that Moses would have learned too much there. Where did he learn about the things of God? Well, probably where you learned it. Probably where I learned it. Where did I learn the things of God, first of all? At home. From who? From my parents. 
which is God's first appointed channel for learning the things of God. Our fundamental teachers, our primary teachers, not in the sense of being primary teachers, but our primary teachers, our mothers and fathers who are supposed to model God himself to us. That is where Moses, in God's gracious providence, first learned the things of God. As a small child growing up, he may be destined for the palace, but he knows who his mother and father are. It's the godly Amram and the godly Jochebed. These parents who had hidden him and nurtured him. And up until the age, can we say, of about seven, they would take care to teach him. They taught him about the present, the reality of the evil that they were suffering, the persecution and the genocide, how she hid him as a little child in an ark, and how God delivered him and he ended up being adopted, that he was actually the son of Pharaoh's daughter, even though he was really their own. They would have taught him that as the work of God, that God allowed that. God allowed that. But they'd have taught him about the past too, the origins of his people. The calling of Abraham in Sumer long, long ago. His response to that in obedience when he came into Canaan, the promised land that God gave him. They would have told him about the lives of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob, the founder of the twelve tribes of Israel and Joseph too. Maybe there's not a monument left. Maybe there's not a building with his name on it, but he's still in their hearts. And what's more, his sarcophagus is still there. Remember the bones that Jacob had said, don't bury, let them mummify my body, let it stay with you for the years that pass until you bring it to the land of promise because God will surely visit you. And when you leave this land in a glorious spiritual liberation, take my bones with you and bury them in the cave of Machpelah. Because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And I believe in the heaven to come and in the glory to come. I believe these things. And at your lowest points, in your mud huts, knee deep in mud, baking bricks for a pharaoh without compassion and mercy, remember my promise, remember my bones, because God will deliver you. So she teaches him about the present and the past, but then, of course, she teaches him about the future too. She knows that God will weld them into a nation. She knows that God will bring them out. What's more, she knows that one day a child will be born. Maybe she hoped it would be Moses himself. Moses wouldn't be the Redeemer. He would be a type of the Redeemer. He would accomplish a part redemption. But they know that one day a child will be born. A child unlike any other. From their line. In their descent. Who will be God himself incarnate. Who will really deliver into the land of promise. And who will bring them safe into a glory to come. A heavenly Canaan. Which the writer to the Hebrews calls a better country. And a better city even better than the cities that they were building as slaves for the Pharaoh. And that this Messiah was king of a kingdom far greater in glory than the glory of Egypt. In other words, the royal way that's before Moses is a way that leads to heaven and to blessing, and to being with God, enjoying forever peace with God, love from God, in God, and his people. These two ways are before him. I'm sure she would have said to him before she took him to the palace that his circumcision would not be to him in that palace something that just set him apart from other people in the palace, but was a spiritual sign from God. Remember who you really are. Remember who you really are and remember who you're really supposed to be. And I'm sure that that never left him. 
Maybe that's not who he was now, but he could never shake off that that's who he was meant to be, and that's who he was called to be. From the age of seven to the age of 40, never left him. You know, it's very hard to, to say no to the godly teaching and training of a godly heritage and a mother's example. Very hard to say no to that. I doubt if it's left yourself, even if you've left it. And uh, God may be calling you to check your own identity. Uh, People talk about choosing identity and having various identities. According to the Bible, there are two identities that you can have. You can either be in Christ or out of Christ. That's it. It's nothing to do with chromosomes, nothing to do with genetics. There's identity politics. People are increasingly defined by whether they're men or women, by whether they're black or white. These are the things that matter. You know, these things don't matter at all to God. They don't matter at all. What matters is whether you are in Christ or out of Christ. You have an identity tonight. You are either out of Christ or in Christ. And the wonderful news is that you can change your identity. You absolutely can. You can move from being a man or woman outside of Christ to being a man or woman in Christ. That's a change of identity. And you'll know, you'll never want to change back. There's loads of uh, identity change operations going on and people distraught because they want to go back and they can't really go back. You'll never want to go back from this one. You do need, you do need a change of identity. And that's what's presented before Moses. The problem is that regarding this way that is bound up with his mother and with his father and with his history and his heritage, it's just so hard. Because when he looks at the people who, who stay close to that God and stay loyal to God, they, they're the ones in the mud huts. He's very conscious that they are the ones in affliction and that they are the ones enduring reproach. Now, he's tasted the way of Egypt. He hasn't tasted that way, but he can see it. He knows it. These people were once a godly people who were blessed in the fertile lands of Goshen because a Pharaoh who was sympathetic to them because of what Joseph had done for their land and indeed for Pharaoh. He strengthened the throne of Pharaoh because of his economic policy and his administration. God used him to bless Israel. That had all changed. It was now whips, mud huts and bricks, impossible quotas to meet. And it was now, or at least it had been, a genocidal situation. Probably not now, but it certainly had been then. And that was as real to Moses as the treasures and the pleasures of Egypt. And who in his right mind was going to choose that? I mean, when, when I present these two ways before, you know, as they appear to Moses, well, who's going to choose that? So what was his choice? Well, it's described in two simple words. He refused one thing and chose another. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and he chose to suffer affliction with God's people. Refusing and choosing. In every choice, of course, there's something to be selected. By definition, something is rejected. Christianity is like that. You can't just choose it without rejecting something. I actually need to urge that point because there is a contemporary version of Christianity that's been let loose even in the Reformed world, which sees Christianity as something that you can just add on to your life, like an insurance policy that you buy out so that you've got the future sorted out. So it's a case of all this and heaven too, just as I am. No choice to make, uh, something to select but nothing to reject. But how far removed that is from what the gospel message actually is. I mean, there is actually a rejection as well as a selection. And sometimes the rejection is put in in very, very stark ways by the Lord. He tells us, for example, sometimes that you need to make choices. 
that are are akin to cutting off your foot or your hand or plucking out your eye. If your hand makes you sin, cut it off, he says. It's better eventually to enter into heaven having been maimed than with your two hands to go to hell, where the fire is there that will never be quenched and where the worm never dies. If your foot makes you sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life having been maimed with just one foot than having two feet to be cast into hell, again an unquenchable fire and a worm that doesn't die. If your eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. Better to enter the kingdom of God just having one eye. Of course you don't stay one-eyed in the kingdom of God. But it's better for you to enter the kingdom with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where again that fire is never quenched and where the worm does not die. The eye and the foot and the hand simply represent where you go, what you do and what you really want. The eye is the symbol of desire in the Bible. What, what does your eye fixate on? What is it, what is it caught up with? <coughs> if, your, if where you go makes you sin, cut your feet off, Christ says. Of course the language is pictorial, it's very graphic, but it's meant to be like that. It's meant to be the kind of language that takes hold of you and sees you. Get rid of it, sort it out, change it, change it. If, if what you do with your hands is making you sin, cut your hands off. And if what you really desire, especially the wealth and the status of this world, is what you really want, pluck your eyeball out. Get yourself, um, to change the figure slightly, get yourself focused on the kingdom of God. Get yourself doing what God wants you to do and going where God wants you to be. In the habitation of his house, not where sinners delight to gather, to follow out their sinful ways. Choice. Choice, choice. It's not just selection, it's rejection. It's not just faith, it's repentance. And I hope you you all understand that. Because that, that version that just chooses but doesn't reject is pushed out there. It's just not real. There is a cross to be born. There's a life to be left as well as a life to be embraced. I did not stay or linger long as those that are slothful, but hastily thy laws to keep, myself I did prepare. Famously, Moses decided to renounce his status. That's incredible, really. That's quite incredible. Just when the throne itself is tantalizing within his reach, he says, I don't want it. I don't want it. You're not even dangling everything in front of him, not knowing what it is. He knows it, he's tasted it, but he still doesn't want it. There are some people who can't drink the cup of power without draining it to its dregs. Same is true with the cup of ambition. Give them a taste, they've got to drink the whole lot. Moses isn't like that. He lets it go. He identifies with the slaves. Why? That's the big question. Why? Well, I suppose we could say simply because God gave him glasses to look through. The glasses of faith, which means that he saw everything differently. He looked at the way of Egypt, the way that he was living, and he said to himself, this is the best that the world can give. But it doesn't last forever. The pleasures that it offers are just passing pleasures. Sin is like that. Its pleasures are always momentary. And there's this annoying law of diminishing returns. And it's only good if you really noticed it. The law of diminishing returns is the law that eventually leads people to kill themselves with injections. It's the law that leads other people, sadly, to asphyxiate themselves trying to attain physical pleasures that they had grown weary of. Diminishing returns, um, which are not in the Christian life. In Christ, there is no diminishing return. 
that's the wonderful thing. The pleasure grows. In this life, it's not like that. It's a hopeless addiction. A hopeless addiction with diminishing returns. And the world never quite gives you what it promises. It really doesn't. It just never quite delivers it. And the worst thing is, is just that there's a sting in the tail. Sting in the tail. Ultimately, no reward. The great man dies like the fool. Psalm 49 reminds us of that. Build houses, buy lands. Amos rebukes those people who are adding house to house endlessly while other people don't have any. He says, you're, you're adding field to field. Why? Do you need these fields? Do you need all these houses? Do you not know that shortly it's over? It's finished? If our destiny is the darkness and desolation of hell, what profit is it if we gain the whole world and lost our soul in the process? What profit is it for yourself if you gain the world and lost your soul? I mean, you may spend half your life wishing you were someone else. Woody Allen famously said that his only regret in life was that he wasn't somebody else. That's a pretty big regret to have in your life. It might be your desire to be somebody else, to have attained what somebody else attained. Why? If you've lost your soul, if you're losing it, you can still, friends, by the grace of God, recover it. So by the glasses of faith, he saw through Egypt and its pretense. It's like... Satan showing him all the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time and he sees through it and says there's nothing in that. At bottom the world is shallow. You say, but it's the only show in town. It's not the only show in town. That's the point. It's actually not. (laughs) With the same glasses of faith on, he turns back and he looks at his people, where he came from. And he begins to see more than the whiplash and the mud huts, and the degradation, and the slavery. He sees more than all that. He begins to see that they have something he doesn't have. Something that was in his father and his mother. Something in the people that made them rise above their degradation and their slavery. A nobility. A nobility of life and spirit. A dignity. A faith. And a living, unchangeable God. You know yourself, I'm sure you know yourself, that you've encountered that in people. You can remember people like that. Perhaps people like that brought you up. And you look at them and you look at yourself now and you've chosen this and they chose that. And what a difference. What a difference. And you know, maybe there was a time when you pitied them. You thought, oh dear, look at the, look at the cramped life or look at the cramped choice. And, and now you look and you say, well, it's not like that. It's not like that. It wasn't like that with my father or my mother. Aaron's brother, who's now 43 years of age, and his sister. There was a joy and there was a love and there was a purpose in their life. And they spoke of a reward and were told that Moses had respect to the reward. In the Greek language, it's a strong word. To say that he had respect to the reward means that he actually turned round and looked at it, to fix your eyes upon it. He was able to see well. As the chapter begins, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. He's able to see that the sufferings they're suffering are the sufferings that the Messiah would suffer and that the Messiah would conquer. He's able to see that the promised land they're looking towards isn't just real on earth, but it's supremely real in heaven, where it seems so unreal to an unbelieving world. He believes it's real and he believes it's true. He believes that this life may be a cross-bearing exercise, but he believes that there's a crown at the end of it. There's a glory in this world, but it's entirely eclipsed by the glory of the world to come because he's got glasses on and God gave him these glasses and he sees everything differently. It's all about perspective. And you look at the world and it's all about perspective. You need to ask God to help you see things. And when he sees it like that, the choice becomes a no-brainer. Just as it was a no-brainer without the glasses, it's a no-brainer with the glasses. It's only one choice to make, friends. Choose Christ, choose life, choose heaven, choose faith, 
It meant a difficult decision. He went out now and again just to look at the brethren's burdens. And I'm sure Satan said, look, this is all you're going to get, you know. I suppose the devil did for him what he often did for us. He, he makes the Christian life look as bad as it gets. And he makes the world looks as, look as good as it gets. And I suppose he saw the world as good as it got. And he saw the Christian life as bad as it got. And any time he would visit these huts or look around them, they looked at him as a prince of Egypt. And he looked at them and said, are they really my people? Should I be with them? And the devil says, don't be a fool. And God says, that's who you are. That's who you should be. That's who you must be. And that's who I'm calling you to be. Maybe you've been despising Christians, perhaps for some length of time. Maybe most of your life, for all I know, I don't know. But God is calling you now to recognize that that's who he's calling you to be. Whatever is involved in making that choice, you make that choice because it's better to make it. And one day he decides, I'm leaving it. And the prince of Egypt lays his talents at the feet of a new master. At 40. What age are you? 12, 18, 21, 40, 45. They say that life's about choices. Absolutely life's about choices. It always is. Every day, it's all about choices. And what this tells you is that you've got a choice to make. When Moses makes it, he soon discovers that he runs into trouble straight away. But that's for another time. May the Lord persuade yourself tonight in the innermost parts of your heart to say yes I'm following you I'm following you let us pray eternal God grant us that holy resolution that will not stay or linger but that would prepare ourselves immediately to keep your word and to follow hard after it, esteeming esteeming it greater riches than anything this world has to offer. And uh, we know that the gift that Christ gives is eternal life. And once we have tasted what that is in quality as well as in quantity, we will see this life for what it is, transient, a vapour that just appears for a moment and vanishes away. Lord, may we have Christ now, and may he fill our hearts now, and fill our lives. In his precious name we ask it. Amen. (coughs) Let's um, sing from God's word in conclusion in, in these words that I just referred to a while ago. Psalm 119 at verse 57 Though my sure portion art alone which I did choose. Notice You've got to make a choice. It's very straightforward. You've got to make a choice. I have resolved and said that I would keep thy holy word. Verse 59. I thought upon my former ways and did my life well try. Try it yourself. Stick it in the balance. And to thy testimonies pure my feet then turned I. I did not stay. I didn't stop. I didn't linger long. As those that slothful are, people who just don't know whether to do it or not, they never get anywhere. But hastily, quickly, thy laws to keep, myself I did prepare. Four stanzas. Let's stand to sing them.